When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time. I'm Stephen Hewson. Well, the Winter Olympics are in full swing and New Zealand's gone close, but a medal still proves elusive in Pyeongchang. Snowboarder Carlos Garcia-Knight and speed skater Peter Michael have enjoyed top five finishes, but no one's been able to emulate the efforts of skier Annalise Koberger, who remains New Zealand's only Winter Olympic medalist. She won a silver in Alberville in France in 1992. That could all change, though, this weekend, with the team pursuit speed skaters of Shane Dobbin, Peter Michael and Rayon Kay. The trio are ranked second in the world for the event, and Dobbin's come out of retirement for one last crack at Olympic glory. Everything's going pretty well. The village is nice, as nice as it can be for an Olympic village. But the uh, the oval's brilliant. It's uh, it's a nice new one, and um, ice conditions seem to be suiting us. Uh, the World Championships last year in 2017 um, were held at the same the same venue, so that was our official test event. And we we were happy when we stepped back on the ice. The conditions were almost identical to you know, what we can remember from from 12 months ago. So it's um, it was good. We were a little afraid that we're going to change the ice. Um, how they prepared it and what the conditions were going to be like. But at the moment, they, they feel pretty similar, so it's, it's been good. In terms of the Games itself, how are you feeling about your own form and, I guess, what are your goals? What are your Have you set goals or targets for yourself for the Games? All of my training has been based around uh, the team pursuit and um, you know, doing what's, what's best for that particular event. Um, we finished second at the World Champs last year, so... Um, you know, we're we're pretty confident in our own abilities. Um, during the World Cup um, season this year, so our qualifying events um, for the games, we come in ranked second. Um, there were only um, two teams out of the three World Cups. We made uh, two podiums, and there were only two teams that made two podiums. We feel good about where we're at. Um, obviously, we're at the Olympics, so every team's probably going to feel pretty confident with, with their own preparations. Um, the, the team pursuit in particular is a very competitive event. Um, out of the eight teams, I believe seven have made podium this year. And, you know, the difference between first and fifth and sixth, for example, you're talking 0.3 or 0.4 of a second. Now, if you spread that out over eight laps, it's it's less than a blink of an eye per lap. So it's um, it's, it's very, very competitive. But um, we're uh, we're pretty confident with our preparation. Um We've we've done what we believe is some some pretty interesting and uh, different types of uh, training, which we believe is going to help us in the in the team pursuit. So um, look, confidence is high. When you say you've done some different and interesting preparation, what exactly do you mean by that? Can you give me some examples? The team pursuit in speed skating, while it's not new, it's it's only the only event where you skate as a group. So all of our races are all individual races. So a lot of the nations put in their top skaters um, and they may only do one one training session a week specifically on the team pursuit. Uh, we've managed to adapt some of our training program for the individual races into a more of a team pursuit environment. We've, uh, we've learned how to not only skate um, close and in sync with each other, but we're also able to um, 
assist each other with speed. So we kind of we skate behind each other and we we skate with the arm out in front and the guys behind are assisting the guy in front. So we're kind of giving them a little push while we skate, uh, which not a lot of the other teams do at the moment. So we're kind of we believe that that will give us an advantage um, nearing the end of the race, where other teams should start fatiguing out. We should be able to um, to maintain our race pace a little better. That's speed skater Shane Dobbin talking to Clay Wilson. The head of the New Zealand Olympic Committee, Karen Smith, says the lack of coverage for women's sport in this country is a sad reflection on society. A UNESCO report released this week shows women's sport accounts for just 4% of worldwide media coverage. Smith estimates the figure in New Zealand to be at around 10%, but told Clay Wilson the lack of coverage isn't her only area of concern. It's almost worse than I thought in terms of the percentage um, of women's sports coverage that is, I guess, prevalent. Um, slightly worse than what we understood the case to be in New Zealand, which is not good anyway, but um, I just think it's a, a really sad reflection on, on our society, actually, because, you know, we, in fact, as a country, have so many outstanding sportswomen and, you know, they deserve their stories to be told. And I think it's really a matter of holding organisations to account and working to improve that so that young women, you know, can aspire to to perform and, and do see their role models and understand that following and participating in sport is actually a worthy and important thing to do. You mentioned there about society. Why do you believe, from your perspective, this happens or there's a lack of coverage for women's sport? Well, I think there's probably a variety of reasons. I mean, it becomes a self-fulfilling situation over a period of time and particularly since I've been working in the Olympic Committee and over the last few years, it's something that we've been very mindful of and taking steps to address. And, And what it seems to me is that there's just a... I guess, a focus so much on on predominant large male sports and at times a lack of awareness and understanding and connection point with female stories. And I guess that's the power of the opportunity of the Olympic Games and Commonwealth Games is that they are really important windows to show showcase female athletes and their performances for what they're worth. And so from our point of view, we've now been working over a number of years and actually commissioned some research with the International Olympic Committee for a 12-month period leading into, during and after the Rio Olympic Games just to look at that snapshot and to see how we could work with our sports organisations in New Zealand to lift the coverage. And in fact, that did occur, and it typically does occur around the Olympic or Commonwealth Games. But what we're endeavouring to do is to extend that coverage and that time and those stories but still there were differences in the way the stories were told, um, how they were framed, where they were positioned, and the types of images. In terms of the feedback you've had from the media organisations themselves, what has that centred around it? Is there any feedback on why this is happening or if there's a particular rhyme or reason behind it? Yeah, I mean, from time to time you tend to get the... Um, the feedback that there isn't the supply of information around women's sport um, in terms of, you know, information forthcoming. But I actually feel that as time progresses, that debate is, you know, dissipating. There certainly is high-quality female sports people in all levels and across 
a range of sports. So so that is no longer as relevant as it might have once been. Um, I think, you know, there is also clearly less female sports journalists and commentators and reporters. And that's something that's, you know, certainly had more debate publicly recently. And I think some media outlets are making a real effort to include more women in their in their teams. And I think that too will help lift lift the opportunity. So, I mean, I think there's various levels of, um, you know, reasons and rationale. And some of it, you know, I just think is actually about thinking outside the square and going and finding stories and, and you know, having time to actually research, whereas I think much many media outlets today are under considerable time pressure and there's just so much more content available, readily available about male sports people. So I guess that, you know, that is a default option. That's Karen Smith talking with Clay Wilson. The New Zealand golfer and former world number one Lydia Coe's rung the changes yet again. Coe's fired coach Gary Gilchrist and caddy Johnny Scott ahead of this weekend's Australian Open. It's the 11th time she's changed caddy since turning pro in 2013, while Gilchrist was her third swing coach in the same time frame. She has now joined forces with Ted O, a former PGA Tour professional. Joining me now to talk about the changes is our golf reporter Matt Chatterton. Matt, yet another change for Lydia Coe after a relatively short time frame. What, what's going on in her camp? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, your guess is as good as mine at times, Stephen. Uh, she's got quite a, uh, how do we say it, close group, I suppose you would say, with, uh, with who she's got there. She's very heavily run by her family. Her mother and father have a very close involvement with her, as we all know, as well as her sister, who is her day-to-day manager. And uh, it's not uncommon for people to sort of be on the outer with, if they're not in that group of uh, particular people, they uh, t- tend not to know a hell of a lot uh, coming out of that group because there often uh, been reports across in America that uh, Lydia's camp has no communication with people outside them uh, if, if they don't want them to be involved in their discussions. And so uh, we have obviously heard in the past that her father is uh, very, uh, very particular about who he wants. Uh, working with his daughter and so uh, sometimes these changes get made without even uh, the people knowing that they've been fired. What do you think has triggered the change? Uh, it's probably quite obvious uh, results. Um, you look back at 2014, 2015, 2016, Lydia had a winning record where she was winning almost about 30% of the events she was playing in, so she was uh, right up there. But unfortunately, since July 2016, Lydia hasn't managed to win a single tournament, and as a result, her confidence has slipped. She even admitted that recently, that uh, under Gary Gilchrist and uh, her caddy that she's had lately, she sort of felt as though she'd lost a bit of confidence in her game and didn't feel as though she had that winning edge anymore. So she's decided to part ways with them. Another another change, as we all know, and, uh, and uh, try something new this season she's moved over to the west coast as well she's living in phoenix now rather than florida to try and work on a few things with this new coach of hers so uh yeah we'll uh, wait and see whether or not it's working and the attraction of ted o what, what do you think's taken her there uh, well, there's a bit of a backstory to Ted O, actually. Uh, Ted O is obviously a former PGA Tour professional. 
uh, sort of played a little bit in the uh, mid to late 90s. He was considered a bit of a um, child or teenage prodigy actually back in the day, sort of likened to Tiger Woods when they were both coming through the ranks. But unfortunately, O never was able to actually make it on the uh, big stage. He only ever played six times on the PGA Tour, missing the cut in every single event and instead turned his focus to coaching rather than playing. Funnily enough, O's first ever manager is Lydia Ko's agent, Michael Yim, so obviously there's a close connection there, and hence why they have joined forces. That's a golf reporter, Matt Chatterton. The fortunes of New Zealand mixed martial art fighter Israel Adesanya are on the rise, despite a controversial debut in the UFC. He had an impressive second-round knockout win over Australian Rob Wilkinson in Perth last weekend. He now wants to work towards a middleweight title, but standing in his way is South Auckland-born fighter Robert Whittaker. Ravinda Hunia met up with Adesanya. Ravinda Hunia met up with Adesanya at his first official UFC conference. The win meant a lot, not just to me really, but to him, to Eugene. The day we found out Jamie, um, one of my, you know, teammates passed away we were here for about an hour afterwards and before I left that day I just said goodbye and then he shook my hand gave me a hug and said I promised him I'll take him to the UFC now he can't now you have to you know so it's uh it's it's sentimental to me to kind of get that win and um, just be in the UFC and just do what I knew we were going to do this whole time how imperative has it been to have fighters like Kai around you like Dan around you you kind of had an upper hand with the experience and exposure to those environments before you even fought yeah definitely I was glad to uh, and I'm privileged to walk with Dan to um, the cage at UFC 219 in Vegas the last show of last year and as I was walking there like you know we do our thing and I kind of like gone to the arena and it was even more packed than Perth like I fought in front of 60,000 people in China you know and I felt like ah this is just not just another day in the office a lot of people might have gotten a, a bit of a surprise you walked out all cool calm and collected mm-hmm. and when you got in there the persona took over yeah. there's a bit of a character going on yeah. so how, how important does how much of a part does that play yeah this is this is uh for me i i even watch the fights sometimes and like i've watched that one was a big milestone so i had to watch that a few times but when i watch it it doesn't even feel like me it just feels like who's that guy it's me claiming my spot you know I, I, I love dogs and dogs are like my animals. They, they are, I feel like I can, I can relate to them a lot because they know what they want. They're simple animals. I know dogs when when they when a dog has dominant tendencies, it walks into a yard or in a dog park and just head high, tail high, and just starts to pee on everything to claim it. So I, I didn't even I just kind of like go into the cage. I was grooving. I was on the music and I just everything just went to the beat. Your striking was impeccable. Mm-hmm. Rob continuously tried to take you down and your defence was second to none. Yeah. What do you do when you do get on the ground? What happens when you are taken down? What do you do then? Let them try. Find out. I mean, no one knows. They they, they, they think, oh, wait till he gets a good wrestler. Oh, wait till he gets a black, a proper black belt or this or that. I'm like, all right, I welcome the challenge. Like, you guys don't know. And that's a, a lot of things about my game, you know. They say, oh, he's got holes in his game. I see already holes in the stand-up. Well, just step in the hole and you realise... It's a trap before it's too late. I've, I'm ready for the title. Like, if, there was some, if you all didn't fight, there was people like saying, like, put him in the title fight. I would have taken that instantly. Like, imagine that. First fight in the UFC, fight for an interim title, nothing to lose. I said, I, I'll, yeah, I'll toes him up. I feel like this is a new chapter in my, in my career where, you know, maybe if they cater to me, cool. But there's no easy fights in this game. You're in the UFC, you're, you're there for a reason. Everyone's tough. You know, everyone's got a chin or blah, 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 blah. You just have to step up, and I'm ready to step up. Have you heard from Dana yet? Dana, no, not yet. Me and Dana, Mick Maynard actually showed me the group chat, 
uh, with Dana, Sean Shelby, and Lorenzo, and showed me like when my fight came on, what they were saying, and let's just say they were impressed, very impressed. It's the 40th anniversary of some remarkable New Zealand cricket history. In 1978, a three-test series began against England at Wellington's Basin Reserve that was to see New Zealand finally register its first-ever test win over England. It was the 48th match between the two nations, with New Zealand having lost 23 tests previously and drawn 24. New Zealand made 228 in their first innings, but slumped to be all out to 123 in the second. That left England just 137 to win. Another loss, well, it seemed inevitable, but England capitulated and were all out for 64 with Sir Richard Hadley taking six wickets. Well, there's one thing you can say about Hadley, he doesn't mind them bouncing it at him. He's in now, bows to Willis, it's outside the off stump and Willis steers it to slip and he's caught by Howard. Applause you hear, and I'm wonder whether you can hear me about this. Just as if New Zealand, in fact, is much more important, I think, than if New Zealand had won a football match. And I think we can, it's a very emotional experience as the New Zealand players stand out in front of the stand at the Basin Reserve, surrounded by a crowd of great jubilation. And I think probably it's an emotional experience, as I say. And for those of us who followed New Zealand cricket and cricketers for so long, I think. We could perhaps be forgiven for a moment of perhaps patriotism or parochialism, call it what you like, this time, for I don't think we'd be human yeah, if we didn't share. Would that be right, Don? I don't think we'd be human if we didn't share to a degree. Absolutely not. I was just going to say, before I go off to talk to London, may I add the warmest congratulations of at least one Englishman, and I'm sure it will be echoed by millions of others, to New Zealand on this first test victory. Uh, it hasn't been a match distinguished by great batting, but it has been a match hallmarked by some very, very fine bowling, some excellent catching, some attacking captaincy, and for the last two days at least it has been a game of totally absorbing interest. Yeah, two players made their debut for New Zealand in that game, batsman John Wright and swim bowler Stephen Bock. I spoke to Stephen Bock and asked him if he thought after that test match, test cricket seemed pretty easy. I did. Um, and... Uh... But personally, I knew that wasn't the case. But uh, they're the sort of things that were were said around the room when uh, when Wrighty and I were there. You know, you guys, you come in for one test and you, the team does something that uh, New Zealand cricket team hasn't done ever before. I remember Walter Hadley coming in and shaking a hand and reminding us that there were all the great players that had played against England in the years um, previously, and they'd never had the experience um, that we were having right then, and uh, you know that was that was fairly telling. It, it, you know, it made you think. Did oh, big celebrations in the wake of it? It wasn't really. No, we went back to the hotel afterwards. I, I don't remember. <laughs> maybe maybe there were big celebrations. That's why I don't remember. But. Um, I think it's more the time has um, dulled those, but I, I don't recall having uh, big celebrations. I recall um, that we had uh, some champagne in the dressing room. So, uh, you know, and it only took a couple of those to get pretty heady after you'd um, had the adrenaline flowing the way it had been. By the sound of it, it's the realisation of what you'd achieved only sort of 
dawned upon you later in your career, perhaps? Well, it did. Um, yes, I think that's probably very fair. I just didn't have the experience and knowledge of the history of cricket uh, in New Zealand cricket at that time to realise the importance of this. Um, as time went on, um, yes, it was... Uh, you know, it was obvious that this was a watershed moment, really. What about the reaction from the England team? They were very gracious. Um, Jeff Boy- I remember Jeff Boycott coming into the room and um, and shaking our hands, and uh, and he was incredibly gracious, and so were the other players. So they, a lot of those guys were young, um, although they had experienced players. A lot of them were, were early in their career, like Botham, for example. You know, I, I always remember their, their response to it was uh, incredibly good. That's former New Zealand Test cricketer Stephen Bock reminiscing on New Zealand's first ever Test win over England 40 years ago at the Basin Reserve in Wellington. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, you can email us here at sport at radionz.co.nz and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.